We're all good. All right. Um, so you can see the norms here. It's It hasn't changed since we started. Basically, be nice and be concise and feel free to uh, chime in through the chat or obviously to get everybody uh, talking to each other. We'd love for you to kind of volunteer. Um, you can raise your hand or uh, jump into a conversation. So I believe this time you're not going to have to ask to unmute. Um, so you can unmute to, to chat. Um, so right now, uh, because everybody's in, if you can go in and add just where you're from uh, into the chat, that would, that would help us. Um, the topic of today's uh, discussion is around areas of opportunity. And so I've sent everybody an email uh, that talks about different, different topics about Pete, about uh, teacher education, and trying to figure out how to continue to prepare quality health and physical education teachers. So um, I'm going to, uh, at this point, drop in all of the questions um, into the chat. So if you didn't get the email, one, just send me, a, send me an email. I'll add you to the email list. Um, um, but also, if you didn't have time to prepare before you, uh, before you came on today, um, these are the questions. Um, there are a bunch of them. We don't have to go um, in order. If you have other stuff as well, feel free to, feel free to bring that up. But um, in order for us to get going, um, we are going to start with our first question, uh, which is, um, and we've, we've talked about this through the 13 Peak Collaborative um, conversations. We talked about um, issues of social justice and cultural responsive pedagogy. Um, so we're going to lead with that today. Um, so the question is, what do you do in your programs to teach pre-service teachers how to be culturally responsive? And as you're thinking, um, or if you're jotting down some notes from the other ones, um, I'm going to ask uh, Craig uh, from USF to come on and kind of talk about, because they were actually doing a, a project about this um, at USF with their undergraduate students. So I feel like that's a good place to start. And once uh, Craig's done kind of explaining that, Feel free to either ask questions or talk about how your program does it. So go ahead, Craig. Yes, thank you so much, Risto, um, for the introduction there. So I'm a uh, graduate teaching associate at the University of South Florida. I'm a doc student there. And one of the projects that uh, me, Dr. Flory, and Dr. Wiley have been working on over the course of the really the past year now um, is we were conducting a study on the culturally responsive teaching self-efficacy of um, of our alumni. So we had sent out this, this massive, this sent out this, uh, this study, to, this survey to them, um, which included some demographic questions, some, uh, as well as this thing called the culturally responsive self-efficacy scale. And on the scale, there are 40 items that reflect uh, general teaching practices, as well as more culturally responsive teaching practices centering around four competencies, which are curriculum instruction, classroom management, student assessment, and cultural enrichment. So um, with this, all the scores get added up, and the higher a participant's score, the uh, more efficacious they feel to be able to enact culturally responsive teaching. And um, as a, at the very end of the study, um, we provided them an opportunity to drop their email if they uh, wanted to follow up with an interview um, 
if they had taught in an urban school. So as a result of this, we ended up conducting 13 interviews. And those are really what I want to focus on um, a little bit more so than the quantitative data. So with the, because really this is uh, our alumni, they, they range from 2013 to 2019. And during this time, uh, Dr. Flory took over as the program coordinator. And like her big area of study is uh, um, culturally responsive teaching and rel culturally relevant pedagogy. So she, at this time, she started um, infusing culturally responsive teaching strategies within the entire uh, curriculum course load. So some of the things that, um, and our, our participants cited this um, in our interviews about what made them feel prepared to teach in a urban setting. So, um, so what they cited were the, uh, our internship, ex internship and clinical experiences, as well as some specific course content and assignments. So um, with our program, uh, as a requirement, as part of our program, we require our students to have at least one placement in an urban or diverse setting. Um, and this is a requirement for, for the College of Ed at USF, um, but we also have the ability, because we work very closely with the district, to be able to give them more than just one experience. So over the course of their five semester program at USF, we have them in schools the entire time um, from the moment they step into the program. So um, the way we've done that is through some of our methods courses. So. Uh, like when they come in their first course with me, then uh, about half the semester we're in schools, I'm teaching alongside them. The following semester, they're with Dr. Flory um, in a secondary methods course, and they're in schools as well as at pre-internships. Um, and then they get a little break over the summer, and then the following fall semester, they enter back into schools, and they have a second secondary methods course um, where they're teaching in schools. Um, and it, it aligns with the content in the course. So for example, we might be learning about, they might be, we might be going through the tackle games uh, model. And instead of just teaching that in like an academic university setting in a gym, we're, we're actually out at schools working with uh, local teachers to provide these additional clinical experiences um, throughout the program. And this provides us an opportunity to uh, have a, uh, opportunity for our students to have some additional teaching opportunities in diverse schools, as well as opportunities to observe their instructors. So me and Dr. Flory implementing different CRT practices, as well as opportunities to have real-time conversations concerning this. Um, so this has allowed a lot for teachable moments related to language, religion, immigration status, when working in these methods and IDNC courses. So, we've we really made it a point to make sure that we're working with our local community because we work all, uh, University of South Florida is located um, within the 10 number, I believe it's number six now, sixth largest district in the United States. And the hardest positions that they have to fill in their district are at their highest need schools, which tend to be underserved. Um, majority, uh, a, a very, very diverse student population, high Hispanic, high, uh, high black uh, student, like there's, it is a massive, massive, um, high, high underserved populations there. So um, one other thing that we've done in our program is 
we've infused um, lectures and discussions concerning biases, gender, sexuality, race, and language within our courses. So assignments that concern this include like biographical essays, um, including experiences that contributed to their past to becoming a DE teacher, reflections on case studies related to social justice topics, teaching and management philosophies that include principles of culturally responsive teaching. And uh, one of my favorite assignments, which I'm gonna drop in the chat here shortly, is uh, an immersion assignment where students are required to spend time in an unfamiliar setting and reflect upon their experiences. Um, because one thing that uh, our student, our alumni really cited as part of our study was they were absolutely shocked going into these diverse settings because it was so much different than their upbringing. So there was a little bit of a shock with that, but once they got over that shock, they were able to make connections with students and try to understand what they're going through and understand that it's different than what they had growing up. Um, and while you can't you know, break down every bias over the course of a five semester peak program, you can at least get them going in the right direction and get them feeling more confident to um, enter the profession and teach in a diverse uh, setting. Um, and one of the things our students really expressed, um, and it was a quote that one of our students said was, uh, as a result of teaching in their urban school uh, during their internship was they said, if you can teach here, you can teach anywhere. Um, because they had, they had felt this confidence from working with all these different challenges that were different than what they had growing up. And now they're, um, they're entering the profession and they're like, okay, well, I had these challenges here. I was able to meet these challenges and this is how I met them. And here's how I can adjust it going forward, um, depending on the population I'm serving. So that was just uh, some of the, the kind of things that we talked about. We do a lot in our program, um, but really every single course involves some sort of um, uh, social justice aspect, whether um, that be talking about sexuality, race within our classes, or going into schools and enacting that in practice and having those discussions with students. So. Awesome, yeah. thanks, Craig. Um, so there's, there's a lot there, and I think that there's a lot of, different um, different ways, different schools do this. So we're really interested in hearing from those um, from those other other people on the call about the first two questions. And I think that, um, you know, we can kind of incorporate the second question into this because I think it goes hand in hand. So how are you um, implementing culturally responsive pedagogies into your pre-service teacher program? And then also how are you, uh, you know, exposing the K to 12 students who are different than, than them. And that, this could be different in a lot of different ways, socioeconomic status, race, rural or urban, um, or do you have issues doing that because you're in a, you know, rural community and it's hard for you to find an urban placement. Um, so that, I think that's also important. Anybody want to chime in here? Um, I can chime in real quick while others are formulating. So we use the case study book as well, um, Tischler and Flory's um, uh, case study book. And I think the one thing that we've found to be more successful is when we ask the students to 
think about the case study as though it was in Greeley, Colorado, because we're in University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. And, you know, there's so many kind of shared experiences. We, we use like the one about migrant workers and things that are very common um, in Greeley. And so I always try to get them to think about it from the perspective of, of our setting in Northern Colorado, because otherwise I think they, it's, it's really um, abstract to them. They're like, oh, well, where, where is this? And I'm like, well, it could be here. So let's talk about it as though it was here. And what does that look like? And I think context and setting is really important for our students to think about um, with respect to that. The other piece that we've been doing the last couple of years is having our students engage with the A to Z of social justice articles in the JOPERD, um, there's a, two parts of them um, and really kind of starting to introduce that, that type of terminology in our program, I think is really important. Um, you know, I think an entire degree could be taught on teaching culturally and linguistically diverse students in physical education. Um, so I think thinking about infusing it across our programs versus just like, here's one course that does it, which we've developed a new course at UNC that actually is going to address those issues, but then still making sure that we're addressing those issues in um, other courses, I think is important as well. Thanks, Jamie. Um, others? I'm gonna jump in there and just go off of what Jamie said um, in regard to uh, making sure you're infusing it across your courses. So um, one of the things that we found, cause we have a course dedicated to ESOL um, at our university. And one thing that we found, and that's a state requirement and it's taught gen ed across um, math teachers, language arts, science, PE, um, really, and it really acted um, from our from our study, we found it acted more of a checkbox and didn't actually prepare for the specific setting. So um, as a result of that, we end up, you know, looking at our entire program again and figuring out, you know, this may have been touched on in that course, but we can't really, we don't, we know that it was not based upon our responses. So we got to figure out how we're going to infuse this across the curriculum um, instead of just having this off course where we thought that it was being covered, but it actually was not. Good points there. Um, I'll, I'm going to share just a video uh, that I, I have in my classes. Um, so I had this when I was at Cal State Fullerton. It was a lot more relevant because it's an LA Times story about a day in the life of a migrant student. And it talks about a student who immigrated without his parents and is living in LA, goes to school during the day and then works until like midnight or 1 a.m washing dishes and then takes the bus. And it just like kind of shows another reason why students might be falling asleep in school. Um, and I use this, we have a culturally, or uh, we have issues of cultural and gender issues in physical education standalone class, which is also our writing intensive class at Mason. And so we we talk about a lot of the issues that, uh, that Craig, um, Craig brought up, I've also used the Immersion Project. So the Immersion Project there is amazing. It, it is really, really transformative for, for students. And I think maybe on a previous Peak Collaborative, we talked about this there. If you're going to implement this blindly right away, you also have to take into consideration, like, are you putting students in a dangerous position? 
So you have to like make sure that you you do address that before you go out and just say, hey, just go over there, you'll be fine. So really consider maybe it's just an email to you and say, this is what I'm going to do for my emerging project. Um, but I think you know the uh, social cultural issues and issues of gender class that I teach, we cover a lot of these things. But I also think that it's super packed in 15, 15 sessions, essentially. Um, and you're almost covering a topic every two weeks or every week sometimes to be able to get through the breadth of it. So, and I know we've had people on these peak collaboratives talk before of saying it really has to be infused throughout the program to be really effective. And I, and I think we do a good job with that. Um, but I know the, the writing intensive course to double that up with that kind of like that sociocultural class makes it so our undergrad students don't have to take an English 302 that has nothing to do with health and physical education. We have a writing intensive course that covers that as well, but we get to cover um, the content that's that hasn't hadn't been in our curriculum before. Other comments? So I know uh, Aaron brought up issues with transportation in the chat, so I'll, I'll read that for those of you who are listening. So does anyone have creative ways that deal with transportation issues? We are pretty urban and I find it hard to place students outside an area that they can get to without a vehicle. And so I know some of you have kind of chimed in on there. I don't know if you want to carry on that. Um, I know that's an issue for um, getting to schools, even in suburban areas. Like if you don't have a car, you come to campus to live on campus, how do you get to XYZ elementary school in the middle of a suburban neighborhood? So I think that transportation issue is there. And then you could say, hey, carpool, but do you have a university policy against having people, like they're not riding with you, so are they writing with other people? How does that work? So I think that transportation issue is really good. Any, anyone care to comment on that? I feel like I'm teaching my own class. <laughs> I can jump in just because I was saying in the chat that like I, I have it on, um, their practicum information form, like when they fill out their schedule for me so I can decide where they're going to be placed. I always have them right on the back of the form. Like, do you have access to transportation? Um, like, are you willing? Because one of the schools I place my students at is like 45 minutes away from campus. It's in Fort Collins and it's two of our best PE teachers, Joe Dixon, who was actually on a few or a couple um, collabs ago talking about SEL. And, you know, but not all of them can afford the gas to get back and forth and, you know, different things. So I always ask them to tell me like, A, do you have a car? B, can you afford the gas to get back and forth? Um, or are you willing to carpool and things? So, um, cause we don't have a policy against that. And, and then I try my best to accommodate students um, into schools that they can actually get to. Thanks, Jamie. So I'm gonna throw a curveball here. I want everybody that's participating to tell me on a scale of one to 10, how burnt out are you? A 10, I'm overwhelmed and burnt out. A one, you feel, you feel great. So you can put that in the chat or show it because I feel like we have been putting these uh, collaboratives together. And so we haven't gotten a lot of feedback on this last one. 
we were thinking about not running this collaborative because we feel like people are just doing so much. And so we also wanted to be, I mean, look, we will record this obviously. And we, we put this uh, up for people to listen to when they can. Um, but we just want to also kind of get a pulse because my colleagues that I talk to are up towards that don't pile anything on top anymore um, situation. So I'm happy to see we're, we're at least being challenged, unless you're an emeritus professor and then you got time, Jane. So Jane, Jane actually gave us some really good feedback from her uh, from her students at Wyoming. Uh, so I don't know, maybe this is a good, good chance, Jane, to kind of bring you in and share just an overall or some specifics from, although I said I wasn't going to call you out specifically like this, but now, now it's, now it's out there. So. So I got, I got to tell you, I never wanted to retire. I absolutely never wanted to retire. And two years ago, I said, for crying out loud, are you going to like walk into your casket doing this? Get a grip. And so two years ago, I decided, okay, you're going to be 70 years old. It will be time at the end of 2021. And then COVID hit. I am so glad to be retired. I can hardly stand it. I can hardly stand it. I'm very, very, very glad I was there for my students the last year and a half because I would have hated to have left a brand new professor with the challenges that, that we had. Um, I, and I miss the students something fierce. I tell you what, I don't miss a single other thing. I don't miss meetings. I don't miss COVID crap. I don't miss budget cuts. I don't miss the fights on the higher up. Um, but I miss my students something fierce. And I miss all the wonderful PE teachers across the state of Wyoming and here in Laramie that we work with. Um, so over here on my other computer, um, I, I, did, I, I have a listserv of all the students that have graduated from our program since I got here in 1999. And I sent out a little newsletter every at the end of fall and spring semester. And so I keep all of them on this listserv. And, and this listserv, I, you know, I keep track of their positions, where they are, if they get married, new babies in the family, you know, all of this stuff. And they just love that. And it's low key. It's an email. Somebody said something about why don't you do Facebook? I said, because I think Facebook is the devil's work. And that was 15 years ago before we came to the proof that Facebook is the devil's work. So I didn't send the request out to all of our grads. I picked a purposeful sample so I could get some high school, some elementary, some larger town. And, and your talk about diversification, it's very, very, very hard for us to do that here in Wyoming. We are very white and we are very Trump. We are the most Trump in the union. 70% um, uh, of our voting population voted for Trump both, both times. So we're very white. Um, so I sent out a purposeful sample and I heard back from students and uh, they, for the most part, they felt as though they learned quite a, quite a bit with us. 
uh, it's the political things, but they said, you know, I don't know how you teach that in an undergraduate program. Um, but one of uh, one seven-year veteran said, I wish I would have learned how to um, handle a student who's completely defiant, didn't learn that. Um, and he, he also had some good, good suggestions, make sure you don't do things the same every year and uh, make sure that students know that you love them. And, but we try, we try to emphasize that here. We show love to our students, the little pipsqueaks. I love them to pieces, but have to dress them down periodically. I have no idea who's doing that now that I'm gone. Um, because I know Tristan Wallhead, Ben Kern, Kelly and Angela Simonton are not gonna do that. Mark wouldn't do that. Karen Goudreau wouldn't do that. So that was my job. Um, so one, one person said, and he unfortunately <laughs> is teaching in Texas right now. I'm so sorry about that. Um, but uh, PE is a dumping ground. Uh, for him. And he said, I wish I would have learned how to uh, teach. And I said, you can't, you really can't teach um, 60 plus students because with COVID we're, we're kind of the dumping ground. And I said, you just have to keep them safe and maybe you can get a little physical activity. And um, we don't have large classes like that in Wyoming, even our uh, larger towns don't. Um, and then uh, one student said he wishes he would have learned a specific content to teach. Um, and it was weightlifting, weight training. He didn't feel that that class was particularly good. And we all know the very important work that um, Philip Ward is doing uh, at The Ohio State in regard to specific content knowledge. And we know the importance of uh, being secure in specific content knowledge, but we also know that we can't teach our students all of the content uh, before they leave. Um, and, and that's gonna change over a 20, 30, 40, 50 year career. Um, who, who knew I was gonna be teaching inline skating or who knew anybody was gonna be teaching rock climbing or who knew, I, I didn't know I'd teach jump rope when I got to elementary. Um, I started teaching 50 years ago. The content has changed in that time. And then one other, oh, one, one student who's in an extremely tiny town, and we have a lot of those in Wyoming, as I'm sure the rest of you have some places in your state. Um, he, he said, I didn't, he said, I know you talked about this, but I didn't know it until I got out teaching. And he said, um, having to wear so many hats, you do bus duty and lunch duty and um, you're a mentor, a motivator, a friend, a tutor, a listener, recess duty. Um, I mean, and particularly with COVID, um, one, of our, one of our grads was telling us with his football team, he has to do his own laundry. And he's also in Texas. What is wrong with Texas? Uh, he is uh, doing his own laundry and cleaning um, his helmets. Um, uh, and, and he's getting two, three classes at a time 
because it's a dumping ground because they don't have enough uh, substitute teachers. So that's kind of, it's kind of a spectrum of what um, these um, alums said, they wish they had learned. They also, they also really couched it in. I think I learned a lot and a lot of this stuff that I learned, um, you, you just have to be out there and muck around in it to um, really learn it. Okay, did I take too much time now, Risto? No, you're such a breath of fresh air. I just, I love it. So I, I appreciate that. Um, and you got me to laugh out loud at least three times. So I, my stress level has gone down. It's my job. It's my job to do that. So I, I have pulled up, I, I will bring these up again, the issue of having a defiant student, the large class sizes, which I think is the same in California as well. Um, the weight training or spe specialty, like uh, specific content knowledge and the other stuff that we have, uh, the other stuff that teachers do, not just the teaching part. But let me go to uh, Colin. Uh, why don't you jump in? Yeah. How's it going, everyone? So I'm Colin. I'm at University of West Georgia. So I uh, recently just finished my dissertation and one of the studies was on something very similar and that was on um, I had the opportunity to do a case study on one university and uh, basically had the opportunity to talk to uh, various pre-service teachers that were finishing up their student teaching and the things basically that they learned, the things that uh, potentially were missed within the program. So very similar, but at a different stage uh, in their development. So right as they were getting ready to exit. Um, some of the things mentioned that were similar to, to what Jane was uh, discussing there was this this whole idea that, that the social political issues that are faced, um, they didn't feel prepared necessarily to discuss uh, best practices, not necessarily confront, but talk to veteran teachers uh, about, you know, their role and how to integrate best practices when veteran teachers were there. So that's obviously a reoccurring issue and problem within our profession. Um, so I thought that was uh, you know, something interesting and they, they didn't feel that potentially that was something that was discussed in the program a lot. Uh, and that's just a hard thing to prepare uh, our students for. But the things that they really thought uh, were important were early uh, field placements. Um, they thought that that was a really important key aspect of their development. They enjoyed being out in the field early, uh, seeing, uh, you know, effective teachers teaching um, being able to observe a lot before they uh, had the opportunity to even teach in a practicum class. So this particular program has an observation course and then goes into um, a practicum and then into student teaching. So the, all that extra time was, was very meaningful to them. And they, most everyone agreed that that was the most important aspect of their development. So they enjoyed that. So that was just a couple areas uh, to, that, that were found that were kind of interesting. So how soon are they going into um, into observe or let's how soon are they going to schools? And I'd love to hear from everybody else through the chat or just chiming in. But Colin, how like at UNCG or where you're at now in Western Georgia, like if you're a first time freshman, are you going to class or if you're a transfer student, how soon do you get to go into schools? At UNC, um, it was right into their second year. So it was at the very it was early on in the stages, uh, which um, was pretty helpful to them. Our program here is a little bit later, although I'd, I'd love to change that. 
Um, but uh, so that was very helpful and they commented on that as well. Awesome, others? So can some of you kind of share, how does your, for that third question, what experiences do pre-service teachers have teaching K to 12 students prior to student teaching? Um, I'll share at Mason, we have an elementary, you're going in and you're teaching a course and observing at secondary methods, you're doing the same uh, in health methods, you're doing the same in uh, adapted uh, physical education, you're going in less hours, but in that immersive uh, format. And then both in the elementary and secondary classes, we are moving towards having at least four weeks of those um, courses that they are actually going with the class to co-teach um, during, during school time. So uh, that's all before they go into a full semester student teaching. So um, is that similar or different than where you're at? We have, so we have um, the observation semester that Colin was talking about, then they do a controlled practicum in their instruction planning and assessment class, um, which is a four week practicum where the whole class is out together, the faculty is there, um, we have grad, grad assistants on that class that are there as well providing feedback um, with a mentor teacher. And then they go into their method sequence of elementary methods and secondary methods which have more prolonged placements, the elementary methods placement is a little bit more controlled, um, but secondary methods more closely mimics student teaching and happens a semester directly, usually directly before student teaching. And so they go out for um, eight weeks with a partner to one school um, with a cooperating teacher and they teach the whole, so if it's first hour physical education, every first hour physical education throughout the week, they teach that um, and plan their units and different things and then, and then student teaching. So essentially for five semesters, they're having some type of prolonged experience in the schools, whether it's through observation practicum or student teaching. And are they getting at the elementary and secondary so they're choosing middle or high or do you guarantee that all of them are going elementary middle and high school before they go do their student teaching yeah jen's nodding her head we got feedback a few years ago that students felt that they got the majority of their experience at the elementary level which i think is a common um, occurrence across peat programs because it's a little bit safer potentially um, and so we actually changed the instruction planning and assessment class that used to teach at a local elementary school, we now take them to a middle school. Um, so they have middle school as their first experience. Um, and then they go to secondary, or sorry, elementary methods where they're at elementary. And then at secondary methods, they're either in a middle school again or a high school. I try as much as I can to get them into high schools. Um, but similar to what some people are saying, we don't have a lot of high schools in our local area. Um, so we kind of take what we can get from that perspective. But um, I think since we started doing that, and Jen can correct me if I'm wrong, but since we've started doing that, I think we've not seen that type of feedback from students that they now feel like their experiences are a little bit more balanced. I think too, just to add to that, that initial experience they have that's just observation, they have one full semester of just observing. And in that situation, it used to be just in one school and now we've split it. So they have to split their hours, um, elementary and secondary so that they can 
have that first experience in two, two different settings. And that's helped, I think, too. So can you, uh, or somebody, I, I saw Elizabeth's comment here. Um, can we talk about what the difference between observation versus like clinical hours that I know, Emily, you talked about clinical hours of being 100 hours. So um, when I was at Fullerton, we had, you know, 40 hours at the elementary level, but you didn't necessarily have to make at that point, have to make a lesson plan and teach that full lesson plan. It was more so you were observing and we sent them to good teachers so they would let them do certain parts, but it wasn't as organized um, versus at Mason, we have less hours, but it's way more structured that you are actually asked during that time when you're going out that you are teaching a full lesson plan. You're making a lesson plan, giving it to your uh, cooperating teacher. They're going to look it over, get feedback, and then they're going to let you go in and practice. So um, I know the hours vary by state as well. So different, uh, different state schools have way more versus you know, less hours. So I'm, I'm curious of how you, uh, how do you facilitate the observation versus actually the teaching part? I'll jump in if that's fine, just as a, as an example. So I did utilize the phrase clinical hours because that's an internal, that's an internal, but it's been operationalized to include observations. So time spent in any K-12 setting, interacting with learners, um, does kind of qualify as a clinical hour or a clinical experience. Now, by virtue of that, we've been trying to map in a progressive and sequential experience for the learners that might include uh, perhaps initially um, some observations where they really are going in and looking for and at certain teaching behaviors or student behaviors or environmental prompts, um, and then transitioning into small group teaching or one-on-one -on -one teaching, kind of the tutoring, uh, even tutoring of one-on-one -on -one or one via to small group or one to half of a class or one to full class, even peer teaching or group teaching. So we might have a, co a cluster of four undergraduate students going to the same classroom at the same time. And I've got two on the four teaching, one lead teacher, one support teacher, and an observer on the sideline and then someone who's so they're maybe doing some more general observation and that other observer is either maybe video recording or um, doing something systematic like a systematic observation that that's, uh, pro produces something tangible to walk away with numerically for those on the floor um, but the definition of those two of those 100 pre-student teaching hours uh, evolved a bit because at one point in the history of, of this institution, peer teaching at the university counted as a clinical hour. Good practice, perhaps not authentic in a K-12 setting. So that has been redefined. So um, that's what happened here at Illinois State. How long is your student teaching? Say that again. How long is your student teaching? Like is yeah. it 16 so, weeks, one semester? Yeah, it's one semester here. They're K-12s um, licensed, so they do two eight-week placements. Yeah, um, one elementary and then secondary, which constitutes middle or high. Mm -hmm. okay. And if, if health is built into as a, as a supplemental endorsement, 
then that gets wiggled into uh, where they're going, how they do placement um, student teaching. But there's not a number of hours required for student teaching at the state level here in Illinois. So that's a little tricky. So. Okay. Mm -hmm. One thing, oh, oh sorry, well, well, before Elizabeth goes, can I just jump in? Because I think those initial observation hours are, are really important. And I think that they're almost the most important um, that we have a little bit more um, oversight over those because I know previously in, in um, our program at UNC, students could largely sort of set those up wherever they kind of wanted. And I know in the last number of years, the graduate students who have been teaching those courses have kind of narrowed some of those options because we want them to see good PE the first times that they go out. And a lot of them, you know, unfortunately came from programs where that might not have been the best PE. And so they'll, um, sorry, <laughs> I'm in a public place and there's an announcement happening, but um, so I think that that's the piece that's really important for us to like not undersell the importance of those initial observations that we're sending them out to quality programs because we know from some of our students who go to these rock star programs the first time they ever observe their conception of what physical education can and should be is way different than somebody who maybe goes back to the high school that they went to where there's potentially some roll out the ball stuff happening or whatever it may be. So I think that sometimes we discount or we don't put enough energy and effort into ensuring that those initial experiences are really high quality. Um, so. Thanks, Jamie. And Elizabeth, I'm would you be willing to share a little bit? Because I, I saw very quickly going through the chat that you have two out, 200 hours before student teaching, which uh, to me seems, seems a lot. Um, if, if I'm like doing my math of how many hours we have at Mason before we go into student teaching. So how does that work? And can you kind of explain how the student teaching part works as well? How many hours is that? Yeah, so like was posted in Colorado, like Jen posted, we have 800 hours total. And so my students get about 600 of those in student teaching, which leaves me to fill about 200 before student teaching. Um, we get 160 of those the semester before in our pre-internship experience. Um, and so their senior year, basically in the pre-internship semester, for eight weeks, they rotate around to um, six different schools. So a couple elementaries, middle schools, and high schools, and they get to see all the different ways PE is being done. Of course, by now they're a senior, so they've seen what good PE is and things like that. It's also an eight-week way to interview mentors and find the right placement for them. Um, and the middle of that pre-internship semester, they, um, they evaluate mentors, mentors evaluate them, whole process of paperwork, um, but then we make their student teaching placements. And so then the second eight weeks, they are just at that one elementary and that one secondary. So they get really comfortable in those schools. Again, 160 total hours that semester while still taking some classes on campus. Um, but then when they student teach, they're ready to go on day one. They already are comfortable in the school. Um, the principal already knows who they are. They already know half the kids' names. Um, and so that's our our big one um, that we've really worked in a lot of experiences running that pre-internship experience and our students have loved it because it's helped the helped relieve a lot of the stress of student teaching because they're so comfortable 
when they take over at their placements because um, they've already been there for a while. Um, all of our other experiences are embedded in our methods classes like most others. And then like many of you, we run a homeschool program so they can get a lot of experience teaching their own lessons instead of having to teach what a mentor tells them to teach. They get to experiment a lot um, since we run the program. Is that program on campus? Yes, they come. That's why I love my homeschool group. They come to my campus on my in the time period that I have my methods class. Um, and so it is so convenient for my students that have other classes. So we don't we were you guys were talking earlier about transportation issues and things like that. They're getting legitimate experience with kids without any of those other um, barriers because they're coming to our campus and I, I mean, I, I have about 160 kids enrolled in my homeschool program, um, K through 12 and our swimming program and stuff like that. So it's, I got plenty. <laughs> Do they have to pay $9 per parking pass every day? Nope. Nope. They, they come on Fridays and we don't do parking on Fridays because we host so many events on our campus. So they don't monitor parking on Fridays. So I've worked it around all of my athletics and all of my facilities and things like that. And my homeschool families love it. I usually have waiting lists for my class. Yeah, because that's just thinking about the hoops that would have to go through. Okay, how do you pay for parking? Okay, you have to get a grant or otherwise people aren't gonna show up. And then how do you rent rent the gym for, for that time? Because they're an external group that's coming in. So you don't, you just have it as class time or practicum time to get the gym. Yeah, it, yeah, it's just on Friday, instead of me only reserving one court for my methods class, I reserve five. And I have, worked very hard to build my relationship with my facilities and all of the people who do reservations. And they're like, yeah, she brings in 60, hundred kids. So she gets the space. So, <laughs> but like it, it. it took me, this is my 11th year here. It did not happen overnight. I started with one gym and 10 kids that were coming to campus, which was basically two court. families. So <laughs> Awesome. Kim, you want to chime, uh, jump I in? I said I have to buy mine gift cards. <laughs> if I could jump in and build off of the wonderful things that have been said by, uh, you know, Elizabeth just made probably what I think is probably the most important point here. These relationships take time. And um, it, it takes a lot, you can't be doing this your first year as a professor, you, it takes time to build this up. Um, uh, and Emily, I can't remember what I wanted to point out with Emily, but she just said a million good things. So I'll just say everything Emily said was good. Um, so I, I would like to share pre-COVID what we do at the University of Wyoming. And like someone said on the chat, we, we develop a cohort and it actually starts fall semester of your junior year. You apply spring of your sophomore year to get into the program and you have to go through a, an interview and a written assignment. And um, we, you know, we, we chat you and all, all of that crap. So anyway, um, we start fall of, the fall of the junior year. It's called Teaching Lab One. And we start, the, it's built right into the schedule like Elizabeth talked about. Um, we start in September where we bring uh, pre-K children onto campus 
And the pre-service teachers teach four lessons one-on-one -on -one with a pre-K child. Um, then by October, we go out into the schools and I need to, um, full disclosure, of the eight elementary schools in Laramie, seven of the uh, PE teachers graduated from this program since I came in 1999. I know they're good, they're good. They also know what to do. They, like Emily said, they know exactly what systematic observation uh, components there, but they are measuring and coding on a daily basis. In Teaching Lab One, they teach um, two units of instruction, and I think it's, um, no, three units of instructions and it's four lessons each. They have a small group of K-1-2 children. By small group, I mean four or five children. Um, they share a space in the gym. So that's fall of their junior year. Spring of their junior year, we go back out into the elementary schools. Now we teach fourth and fifth grade. Now we teach a full class, a full class. Now in lab one, you have the lesson from introduction all the way through to closure. You have your little group. Uh, lab two, you have a full class of fourth or fifth graders. You have the entire, it's your lesson from introduction all the way through test progression through closure. Um, and you teach somewhere across the semester, somewhere between 40 and 70 full lessons, full lessons. Um, observation is one or two days at the beginning and, and they would just fill out, okay, this is what I want you to look for when you observe. So that's teaching lab two. Teaching lab three, they go to Tristan Wallhead and he takes them to the middle school and high school and they teach, oh God, it's either three or four units Full class, full units of instruction, and it's sport education and the tactical approach. Um, and I think in his, I think they teach 24 full lessons across that fall semester. Um, and then spring of their senior year, they student teach, like Emily said, eight weeks elementary, eight weeks secondary. And being the control freak that I am, I do not allow them to choose their cooperating teacher. I give them the choice of three or four communities in Wyoming they can pick from. They choose the community. I choose the cooperating teacher because as someone said, we didn't work that hard to send them to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. And so um, we're very, who writes all of those full lessons? Uh, they write their full lessons under my guidance, um, but we are not going to throw away student teaching after working as hard as we do up, up to that. We have a very unique situation here. Everybody has their unique situations. Um, when I, I also need them to be with a cooperating teacher that I trust because it takes me six hours to drive to Powell and I can't be supervising them on a day-to-day -day basis. So I need them with people I know I can trust. So that's, um, that's what we do here. Um, our uniqueness provides us with great opportunity. Jane, that's that's a lot of classes to teach. And like when I'm hearing that, so 
what is what is a semester like for an undergraduate student meaning how many um how many days a week are they on campus how do, how do you schedule classes um and are they because that to teach 24 or 40 to 70 lessons you got to be on campus for several hours well they're in laramie um so um spring our poor students had the world pedagogical world according to jane jenkins the last few years because we had some because karen goudreau decided to go to the university in new mexico and start a program there i don't know what she was thinking and so i've got these poor kids for six classes and so I tell them right away in gymnastics and games, I said, don't piss me off because uh, it just is not gonna work for you. Um, it's gonna be best if we get along. So I have them for lab one and lab teaching lab one is scheduled two hours a day, three days a week. And it's in that time that we're in the classroom and we're out in the schools. And I, I work, it's like a Rubik's cube and I work with, the teachers out there with their schedules and our schedules and I get all that to work. Teaching lab two is two hours a day, five days a week. And that gives me more flexibility for scheduling. Then I also have them for methods class one hour a day. Um, so it's in, so they're teaching pretty much from the get go in lab two. Tristan in lab three, he has the same thing. He's got them five days a week, um, two hours a day, where they're out in the schools teaching. And then he has them for curriculum class, which is an hour, um, a couple of times a week. So um, I don't know. They're, they're going to be teachers. So crying out loud, get used to the fact that you're going to be busier in the one-arm paper hanger. This job is not for the faint of heart, so buck up. I, I love it. Uh, I am I'm very, very surprised because I, I have not heard of programs that do five days a week, two hours a day in the classes. Obviously, that's a very rich experience that they're getting. Um, how many units are they getting for, for the five times a week, two hours a day? So it's, they're obviously not in the schools. Well, they might be, okay. It all depends, it all depends. Um, so let's say that I have, I've seen Risto's schedule and I see that he can fit in, uh, he can be over at Linford for two fourth grade classes in a row. He teaches a fourth grade and then he turns around, teaches another fourth grade class. Um, Risto, I forgot the question you asked me. Uh, number of units. So if they're doing five days a week, two hours a day, are they getting six units or? No, you are not teaching five, necessarily five days a week. You're teaching two days a week. Uh, so you may teach Monday, Wednesday, or maybe mm -hmm. you'll teach Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. I don't know. Um, but then you don't teach Tuesday and Friday. Um, so you will teach four units of instruction in lab two, um, 
six, le six lessons per unit. So your first unit is fitness, your second is folk dance, your third is net wall games, and your fourth is gymnastics. Awesome, Phil, chime on in, come on in here. Yeah, we, we just finished a, a study of every university in America with physical education, teacher education. And um, Jane, your program is so far at one end, I, I can't describe how wonderful that is to be able to have that. Um, but most programs have nothing like that. Um, and our the field is confronted, I think, with being drawn historically into doing things the way we've always done it. And I wonder if we took a different position as Hal Lawson likes to say, um, if we weren't sort of defined by our history, how would we rearrange what we're doing? Um, because as you pointed out, Jane, it is a physical impossibility, no matter how many hours you might have in the curriculum to prepare people with the content, to learn the content they need to teach. Um, we also need to recognize that the sheer number of person hours that are put into lesson plans that more than 80% of the people who graduate never use the day after they graduate and never write again. Uh, I'm not arguing against lesson plans, by the way. I'm just suggesting that we really need to confront some challenges to what we're doing. Um, I, I, it also has to do with um, uh, what, what we're teaching. So, so many programs have anatomy and physiology and, and one has to ask what, the purpose of you know having knowing the long head of the biceps origin insertion is to um, being a teacher. When was that last used by an elementary or a high school teacher? Um, and we we need to think about what is the stuff that people really need to know. And you know, for example, if we were using exercise science, I think Chuck Corbin's book Fitness for Life is a, a clearly defined amount of knowledge for elementary, middle and secondary school folks in that domain of content. Um, we need to narrow down what we're doing and teach more, more sensibly to the limitations that we're on, uh, we're in, uh, whether it's the, the program that Jane has or programs that have much fewer than we have. And the only way I can see us doing that is to sort of look more at the practice-based teacher education movement, to look more closely at um, can we present a conception of teaching? So teachers would know, so our pre-service teachers would know something about what's the right way to teach, what, 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 what's the wrong way to teach without locking them into a particular way because they're going to be lifelong learners. And um, I don't know what you think in answering this question is, but when I think about what teachers need um, to graduate with, I, I believe they need to be observers of what's going on. They need to be reflection, refle able to be to reflect on that, and then they need to adapt their instruction to the differing students they have. Those, to me, are the three most important outcomes a teacher education program ought to create. Um, if we do those three things and we teach them how to learn content, teach them how to learn pedagogy, we might be in a better way than what we're doing now because our program is very much like yours, Jane. We, we have seven field experiences that are semester long. They're out two, two times a week for three hours a day, five days a week for, for two and a half hours a day, three hours a day, and then they hit student teaching. And I'm not sure we've got the outcomes that we still would like. And just to give you an example, 
Um, the two largest books at uh, best-selling, if you put aside Fitness for Life, um, but you could we could include that. Um, Sport Education and 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 um, Steve Mitchell and and Judy Oz. I, I can't remember the authors, but the Tactical Games books are the two most popular books. Human Kinetic Cells. But those programs, are, those curriculums are barely used in any recognizable way by the majority of districts in, this, in, in the country. And Spark, which is one of the most successful marketed programs in the country of the 13,500 school districts in the USA, maybe 3,000 use them, according to Tom, and that's just their self-report of them. We don't know if the actual teachers in the district use them anything like they are. So a lot of what we're doing is not making its way into the real world. And, and we're relying on the fact that the biggest influence on teaching effectiveness might actually be the personality and character of the teachers that come into our programs. Um, I, I, think, I think we're playing a losing game to keep doing things the way we've done it for the last hundred years because none of us have the time or the faculty in the curriculum that we used to, in our programs that we used to have. I feel like Phil and Jane, if you wanna just host the Peak Collaborative next month, I, I think we would all just really enjoy that. Um, I, I do have a qu question, Phil, on, you know, you talked about, do we actually need to take that anatomy physiology or those core courses? And do you think that that's a process of, you know, parking back to what you talked about Lawson saying, if we were to be able to do it anew, would we do it the same way? Do you think that that's because we grew out of a school of, uh, school of physical education that turned into a school of kinesiology oftentimes, and then we're stuck with that core course because a lot of us in, are in kinesiology programs versus going into a school of education and then those core courses can be about teaching and that in that route we could get more um, more practical courses that are that are relevant uh, look that's a great argument assuming you've got enough people in your program to warrant having these classes if you're a low n um, it's very difficult to argue for new classes um, uh, and yeah we we do have those classes because of the influence that exercise science had over our curriculum going back 70. 80 years now. Um, I, I think everybody has, has their own issues to deal with this in terms of their context defines what they're doing and you've got to work with your colleagues. Um, but I, I think the way we're doing things is not efficient. Um, you know, at, at Ohio State, we're operating similarly to the way we did when we had half again as many faculties we have now. Um, I don't think we could continue to do that. Um, from a resource perspective. And, and I think a lot of programs are like us. They just don't have the same numbers of faculty they had or, or um, the time in the, in the uh, overall curriculums. Most universities are reducing their total graduation uh, credit hours right now. That causes pressure as well. So if University of Wyoming is on the far end of the spectrum doing a very intensive job of training teachers, what and you, you don't have to share results of a not published study yet, but can you talk about what the other end of the spectrum is so we can kind of get an understanding? Obviously, you've done uh, a substantial study. Um, so like if we look at one end to the other, what is that other end? Yeah, not, not, yeah, not good. Um, you have small colleges that are running programs that are 
uh, where their methods classes include uh, social studies students that are designed for classroom methods versus uh, an activity setting, and that's true of art and music. Um, you've got um, a a programs being taught by people who don't have physical education backgrounds, uh, as in um, we ran across some programs that didn't have physical educators in them. Um, and uh, we, we uh, for programs that are just um, so small that they're merging in different ways with other content areas to try to survive. Um, uh, so yeah, the, 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 the extreme's quite large and it's not true to say that um, the average is good. Um, most of you represent programs that are above the average by quite a lot. Um, yeah, uh, that's probably the best description I can give um, on where we're at with that, yeah. Thank you, appreciate it. Um, any questions or comments or feedback or? Um, I'll just jump in. I think what Phil said is a conversation that we had as like the organizing group of the Peak Collaborative at the beginning of this year was around the idea that, you know, we were all taught, like, don't reinvent the wheel, right? The wheel is working. And I think what Phil is saying is something that resonates with a lot of us on this is that the wheel is actually not working anymore. It's broken and it is time for us to reinvent the wheel and whether COVID pushed us into this place or other, you know, societal issues, like we just can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect different results. We all know the definition of that, right, is insanity. And so um, let's like, I, I think that this is an important conversation for us to have as a, as a community is that we need to be pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zones, outside of the norms um, in order to make um, more progress, I think. Thanks, Jamie. Um, so we have we have a couple more um, questions that we can go through, unless people want to chime in or jump in on on the content that was shared by uh, Jane and and Phil. But if I don't hear from that, we can move into kind of how does your program communicate? So do you actually sit down and talk to faculty across who are teaching the same semester about planning where your big field experience or where your big assignments or written papers or unit plans are due so they're not um, they're not on top of each other and if you know maybe you don't want to say no we don't but maybe people who are doing this can kind of share how they do it and is there like a system behind it and if I can just jump in too to kind of talk about a little bit of the background of this question. When I was in grad school a long time ago, um, we read the book Doing School. I'm not sure if any of you have read it. I can't remember the authors, but it was essentially, it was, it was a dissertation that was turned into a book and it was about how different students have, or how students have to essentially do school. They navigate the requirements and expectations of different professors versus focusing on learning content. So for example, in our program, there's three of us essentially that teach across the program and my expectations and different things might be different than somebody else's. And so they learn how to do school when they're in my class. And then they go to Brian's class, for example, and they have to learn how to do school all over again. And so this notion that if we could 
potentially cut down some of those pieces if we did communicate better together, I think is important to consider. Thanks, Chad, you were gonna jump in? Yeah, uh, sort of a practical question um, related to Phil's comment on sort of needing a creative perspective. We talk often talk a lot about in the socialization process uh, when teachers get into the particularly high school environments where you're you're kind of at the mercy of the team that's there. Uh, you know, how do we rage against the custodial views of our coworkers? Uh, to implement what we know as quality physical education. And I'm wondering if that similar dynamic doesn't exist within PEAT programs. And so a question uh, I have is how do people with creative ideas that really do want to try some different things operate within what could be described in many places as custodial, um, stagnant, whatever, traditional programs to be able to implement and then study these new ideas. So I'm wondering if anybody has any ideas about that. Do you feel like I feel when people don't answer your question? About, Chad, I'm not even gonna address your question. Um, I'm, gonna go in a, I'm gonna go back to what Risto asked earlier. I'm old, I can do whatever I want, Chad. Um, there's very few benefits of being a senior citizen. One is that I can do whatever I want. Um, you know, the communication, I, I, I feel bad for people who are getting into, um, into environments where they don't communicate. Like, I know you know these names, these wonderful people I worked with. Um, Karen Goodrow, Tammy Benham Deal, Mark Byra, and Tristan Wallhead. Now, we didn't always agree with each other, but we all sang from the same choir book. And we had uh, our program was we were all moving this direction. Uh, for example, I taught um, methods right back to back with Mark teaching um, assessment. And so, you know, somebody said something, do you communicate about assignments and stuff? And so I'd say, Mark, I, now I'm doing the dance unit. If you wanted to do your assessment project in with, if you want to tie that into dance, or he'd say, now, Jane, I'm doing this. Or I'd say, now, Mark, when are you going to give your midterm? Because I got quiz number two coming up and I, you know, there's no need to give that on the same day. Tristan was right next door and we didn't even have to get out of our chairs to yell at each other. Tristan, what's going on over there? And we didn't always agree with each other, but we, we got together once a month we, and we made sure we were all singing from the same choir book. Um, you don't have to like each other, but, but for heaven's sakes, have something um, you know, of a program. And I would hope that when youngsters came in, um, for example, when Tristan came in, he brought teacher work sample methodology that he stole directly from Philip Ward, who I think stole it directly from Oregon. I'm not sure on that uh, on that theft, Philip, but you know he brought that in. We go, this is great. We're doing this wonderful job. So, Chad, I, I don't know what to tell you about about people who don't do their jobs. And that's what it boils down to, Chad, when people don't do their job. I mean, what do we do about that? Phil, do you care to um, 
no comment on the theft process? Oh, I'm a big believer in plagiarism. Um, uh, I think we should be stealing from each other and learning from each other. And I just don't think we do enough of that. Um, this conversation today is like, we should be doing this all the time. And we're too bounded by our, the boundaries of our, our um, universities and not enough with the internet as a boundary. Um, so I, these conversations, I, I, yeah, we stole that from Western, well, didn't steal, but we borrowed it many years ago from Western Oregon University and um, uh, modified it for what we wanted to do. And we've moved on since then, but I, I believe we should absolutely be learning from each other. Um, everybody here has got something that, that we could all learn from in some way or another. And um, I just, I think this collaborative is just the perfect way to do that. And I, you know, I think going to shape and learning from each other in those environments are also really, is really important. Um, I'm a big supporter of this. Yeah, and I know in the very beginning of the pandemic, we had some small groups on secondary methods and primary methods where we got together and shared Google Drive. Uh, everybody put in their syllabi and different assignments and we shared assignments that we changed because of COVID. And so I think that there's a lot of space for that collaboration to have those small meetings, to just get on a Zoom call with a bunch of colleagues um, so if there's interest in that while we're starting to prep the next semester again, I think that's a that's a great idea. Uh, Emily. Thanks, Risto. Hey, Chad, I don't have the right answer, but here is a thought. Um, in, I wonder if we all need to challenge one another to get outside of our lanes a little bit more and gets out outside of our offices and outside of our hallways if we're confined and isolated to a peat only space or even a kinesiology only space uh, and start exploring what else is going on around your campus and what other colleagues are doing. Um, I think by doing that and, and even like um, clearly in our communities and schools too and being more open to hearing what's going on and what are some new needs in our discipline, needs in our fields and how we can maybe beg, borrow, and steal some of those ideas to make what it is that we're doing a bit differently. I think if we all stay in our lanes and keep our eyes down and focused and on those outcomes that Phil alluded to earlier that maybe aren't the outcomes that we're wanting to see or we're not seeing what we think we're training them once they get out into the schools, maybe we need to rethink a little bit about um, who we're partnering with or how we are designing some of our programs. and. If we don't, we're going to keep doing the same things over and over. Um, so keep getting keep getting out there and talking to people and bringing in new ideas. Um, you'll get somebody to latch on with you, you know, eventually. Thanks, Emily. Um, so we we typically end at five fifteen. Um, I I'm going to drop the last couple questions in there. Um, for for people who are who want to stick around, I think, you know, I think we started kind of slow, and then Jane pumped some energy into this meeting, and we got rolling, and we got off topic onto greater topics than Jamie and I even even thought about uh, before when we were planning this session. So um, I just want to kind of officially close out the session because we said that we're going to go until five fifteen, but. As you know, all of the peak collaboratives that we run, they go forward to 515 Eastern and then the rest of the time 
we're going to shut off the recording. It's not going to be put on to the podcast. So if you want to continue asking these questions or ask something that you don't want to have recorded, um, then uh, feel free to stick around. But um, thank you so much, uh, everybody. Really, really appreciate it.